Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today's Monday, August the 7th. We are rocking and rolling here in Liberty Hill, Texas. I picked a fight over the weekend with an online troll organization. Many of you may not know who they are. We're going to talk about them because they're ridiculous. But they do serve a broader purpose to illustrate just how soft this world is right now. Not just this country, but most people in this world are living in a pretty soft, at least the the Western world, the modernized world, are living pretty darn good. And maybe that's why we're able to do the things we're able to do. Uh, I'm probably going to call an audible on our buddy Ryan Matta and uh, pull something up that uh, I didn't mention beforehand, but it just occurred to me how irritated I am when <laughs> when we get somebody out there on the Fox News channel that uh, starts mouthing off in platitudes, and uh, I think it's another sign of softness. So the entire theme today is a discussion of who are the real Republicans, and that led me to a broader thought process of this sort of idea of controlled opposition and that everything is going the way that it is designed to go and we're the ones being played for fools. So as long as we're aware of that, I think we can get away from being played and we can end up being players. But without that, we just sort of drift along and wonder, why are things not going our way? Why is everything not the way that I want it to be? Maybe it's because that's the whole idea. And I don't think that's going to be foreign to many of you. So before we get into any of that, I want to say a thanks to our sponsor, Catholic Vote. Uh, let you guys know they really are an excellent organization. I'm going to go ahead and Uh, bring this thing on here real quick. This is the loop. There is the loop right there. And it is easy to sign up for. All you do is you put in your name, your email address. There are over 500,000 people receiving the loop right now. It's a fantastic email. It's going to give you a bunch of useful information today. And uh, what I'm going to do is show you here's the loop right now. And so there it is. This is the loop. I've got it here on my screen. We're looking at uh, Monday, August 7th, Judge Slams, Illinois law against pro-life clinics. I think that's going to be interesting to many of you. Uh, Elon Musk offered to help people who were fired over tweets, and he said that he would be more than happy to fund their legal battle. I don't know if that's going to happen, but it sounds like a real baller move. Uh, Trump said that uh, the Supreme Court needs to protect elections. I think we can all kind of uh, see that down the line being very important. Elise Stefanik out of New York saying the CDC must fire employee who oversaw deaths. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of bad things that have been happening with the CDC. They actually have a new RSV vaccine for infants, and they want you to go get that. Um, but when they use the buzzwords like safe and effective, I have some questions. Mostly my new toddler and my uh, my new baby that's about to be born is not going to be getting whatever this nonsense is. We'll talk about that. I didn't bring up a graphic, but it's worth it. Wyoming uh, uh, prison officials are facing an outcry because they are putting, quote unquote, transgender inmates, which is to say putting men in women's prisons. Handful of other things, couple of other uh, videos that you might want to watch. A uh, a surge in um, in clients rebranding themselves in uh, Wisconsin and Wisconsin Moms Group. So try to help out babies. A lot of good stuff in there. Go ahead and check that thing out. I think you guys are going to really like it. Actually, I wanted to dig into this one about. I want to dig into the one about the judge slamming the Illinois law real quick. And so I'm actually going to read it off my phone here. I'm like I said, we're calling a couple audibles on Ryan because it's early on in the day. Let me uh, let me go back to my main cam here. So this is actually sitting in front of me. This is a, a from the Catholic News feed here saying a federal judge halting enforcement of deceptive practices of limited services. 
by pregnancy centers. It's a bill that was passed in Illinois that was designed to target pregnancy resource centers, advertising and outreach. Specifically, and, and this is going to contrast to something we talk about in a minute about a, a federal judge that's gone off the rails. This is actually what it should be doing. The uh, The judge is actually halting the bill, saying that the bill is painfully and blatantly a violation of the First Amendment. Um, the law is supposed to stop de- deceptive practices, quote unquote, deceptive practices of pregnancy centers. The law says that there's going to be scrutiny for these making false pretense and misrepresentations by blocking pro-life speech outside of abortion clinics, $50,000 fine. The pregnancy centers offer a variety of free services, uh, pregnancy support for women and families in need, materials, necessities, clothing, diapers, strollers, the things that people need when they're going to have a baby. And especially to help out vulnerable and impoverished women, this bill was supposed to limit that. Um, Yet... Yet another time that we're seeing this sort of uh, dual situation where half of this country wants to do one thing and uh, our federal judges kind of pop in and opine, even though they are district judges. Many of you don't understand how that is actually organized. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later on a truly absurd case about the hot sauce, Texas Pete. Many of you who are serving in the military are familiar with Texas Pete. It's actually in uh, some MREs, but it's got a picture of a little guy, and he's got a little gun, and he's wearing some cowboy boots and a hat and so on. So Texas Pete, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's dive right into the main topic, and that is that life seems pretty easy right now. I'm going to read you a quote from a guy named, um, his name is G. Michael Hoff. It's from the post-apocalyptic novel, Those Who Remain. And many of you will be familiar with this quotation. It says, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. It reminds me of uh, one of those little uh, maps in the mall, the you are here. Ryan, where do you think we are in that uh, little analogy of hard times, strong men, and weak times, and good men, and so on? I think we're screwed. I think our generation <laughs> is in big trouble, man. <laughs> How about you? We're sitting right now where weak men are actively creating the hard times. And we're about to uh, we're about to experience them, I think, pretty good. Pretty good and hard. The upside is, as my buddy uh, uh, George Hill said in a, an earlier podcast, there's always a, a beautiful morning after a rough night when you have a, a stormy winter. Uh, or, a, or a you know a cold front come in and roll in and, and cause some turmoil overnight. Sometimes the scariest nights have the most beautiful mornings afterwards. I do think we're coming to that. But first, we're going to have a little bit of a rough go. Um, if we'll bring up that topic number one about uh, it's just a graph. It's very simple for you all to uh, to kind of digest. What I wanted you guys to see is life expectancy 1950 to 2023, and what we see is essentially that the current life expectancy in the United States is about 79 years. And it's a tiny, tiny increase from the year before. But we are living in a time when people can be expected to live, on average, about 80 years. Now, you can go back 80 years. People who were born in 1950, um, are so that's 75 years or so, we're looking at a, an average life expectancy back then of quite a bit less. It was actually about 66, 67 years old was the expectation uh, at that time. And so we have had this astronomical growth. It's just the straight line moving in a very nice linear projection saying that we are going to have an increased life expectancy over these years. Now, if you pull up the next graph there for me, Ryan, we're going to show how that is actually a continuation of a trend going back to the American Civil War. All right. When you look at this since 1960, when the average life expectancy was, I want you to look at that graph. If you're not watching on Rumble right now, you are missing out on what this thing looks like. The average life expectancy in 1860 
was 40 years old and it dipped to as low as 35 during the Civil War, bumped right back up to 40 and stayed there for a couple of years and then has basically been on this march towards 80 uh, since about 1880. We have had a tremendously long period. It's about 140 years, almost 150 years worth of increased life expectancy in this country. And I would argue to you that is what good times look like. Some very hard men made that happen. Some very hard men pushed that along. And just as a kind of a personal aside, we've been looking at uh, the Little House on the Prairie series in my house. My uh, my kids are four and six. My youngest is not yet in a school age, but uh, there's an entire curriculum that's built up around Little House. Many of you will be familiar with it. And it allows you to kind of take a look back into a, kind of a sugar-coated version of a very, very difficult life. Now, Laura Ingalls Wilder is the author of these books. There's multiple in the Little House series. And it tells the story of the Ingalls family, which traveled from the big woods in Wisconsin down to Kansas, where they set up a little house on the prairie. Many of you are familiar with the, the TV show that existed. I think it went seven or eight seasons long, and there are literally uh, you know over 100 episodes of this. And... The story is of a family on the frontier, the American frontier, moving through really difficult times and forging an existence out of extreme and grinding poverty. And I've done a little bit of background on this just to kind of dig into what their story was. And in fact, their story is actually cherry coded compared to what it really, really was, which is to say that it was even more aggressive. Uh, many will know that the Little House girls, there were there were three girls there. There was Carrie, there was Mary and there were Laura. But they actually had a brother who was in between them. And I think his name was Charles Jr. And he actually died. Um, he died in between. So he was the, the third child. And and so the, the daughter is actually the youngest is actually the fourth child. Grinding poverty no money whatsoever, literally just scraping an existence out of the ground, uh, trying to scrape a dusty existence and told in a pretty merry way. So those of us who saw the, the, the movies, we kind of were able to see a story of family, a story of uh, neighbors, of kinship, of a reliance on God and so on, kind of wholesome American values. But it really does tell the traditional story of how freaking difficult this country used to be and why we didn't have the problems with immigration that we have today. The reason was is because nobody was guaranteed success. In fact, most people failed and many people died along the way. Uh, I always tell people that, you know, we had unlimited people coming in from Asia and a lot of them are buried underneath the railroad, which went from sea to shining sea. They were out there giving it a shot and failed, but not for any fault of their own, just because of the backbreaking labor that it took for them to try to carve out an existence. And many of them were buried alongside the railroad that they were building, and they never were able to, to move forward. That was the American possibility. There was The dream was is that you would be successful, but the reality was is that many people were not. And without that safety net, you were guaranteed a shot at the journey, but you were not guaranteed success uh, while you try to accomplish it. And that's the thing that I think we've forgotten on. That's why it's gotten so gentle. I want to just do a little clip right now. Uh, it's it's just a shameless plug for going and watching these. It's such an important idea. Not that this shows a historically accurate view of the American frontier, but that it shows you in a, in a little way just how little it takes to survive and how spoiled and good we have it. My kids and I are sitting on a couch that was made in China we're watching a TV that was made in Korea with internet that's piped into our homes, and they've never known anything different. And honestly, neither have I. I mean, we had smaller TVs, and and but I lived in a house my whole life. I never lived on the ground. 
I never lived in a covered wagon, and I never had my parents put every single thing we owned in a small vehicle pulled by some animals and then went a 1,000 miles to go set up a home in the middle of nowhere. So we're going to play this little clip. This is uh, clip number one. It's just what they showed up with and you know what it looked like for the first. We got about a 90-second clip of Little House. This is from the, the pilot, which goes back to 1974. Again, an idealized look at this. Ryan, if you want to roll that clip whenever you're ready. So for those of you who are watching on the Rumble channel, what you just saw was Michael Landon in, in one of his great roles um, before he did Highway to Heaven, if, if my memory serves. And, and he's out there building a house, pacing it off on this prairie in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing in sight. There are no other people. It's just his family. Those are the only human beings that are able to see what's going on. And he's pacing off and dropping down rocks. And when he says, you know, here's where the fireplace will be, the, the family is laughing because he's, he's walking across just green grass. And dropping a stone and making the borders of where he's going to build this little tiny house. That's all they're going to have. Okay. And then it shows the entire family kicking in. They're digging down to make a little bit of a foundation so they can sink the house into the ground a little ways. And it's with whatever they brought. A broken axe head was the end of their ability to cut wood. He's with a bow saw. That, that's all he's got. It's what they carried. It's literally the things that they strapped onto the wagon. Now, is that totally realistic? No. I think the, the reality of it is, is that it was probably even much harder than the way that it looked. And then the thing that is so realistic for me, and this is what actually made me want to show this to you. Many of us have household projects, and especially if you're a man and you're doing things, you're lifting something heavy. I had to hang some fans in my garage earlier this uh, this last week, and I'm up there and I'm holding it with one hand and I've got a drill in the other hand and I got a screw that's trying to balance on it. And every man that's ever done a home improvement project can can sort of probably empathize with this scenario. And I'm furious because I've only got two hands and I only have the ability to lean so far with the ladder that I have, which is already set down and it's hot and it's sweaty and it's gross. And I have perfectly good lighting because I'm indoors and I have a light on in the garage and I'm not working in the darkness. 
and it still is tough. It's actually really tough to balance something with one hand and hold until your arm starts giving out. And then you see this video of uh, Michael Landon, and I, I don't know the, the name of the woman who plays uh, Caroline, but she's great too. And and they're lifting a uh, you know the 25th pole to make the walls for this house that they framed out. And she just doesn't have it in her because she's a female and she's been carrying logs all day and she's living on the ground and it's hot and they've just chopped all this stuff and they're trying to work at the speed of men. And she's just this like itty bitty little woman trying to keep up with Michael Landon. And, and she fails and she falls and the, and the thing could have hit her. The injuries that can happen from that are catastrophic. The, uh, the, just the work level that was asked of people living on this frontier could have been lethal every single day. Uh, the second episode, he falls out of a tree and he's like laid up for weeks. And uh, it was simply because he was trying to get this kite. Now, how realistic that is, I don't know. But it brings down that if someone wasn't able to work, they weren't able to eat. If they weren't able to eat or get their chores done, then they died. And that is how hard things used to be um, for most of human existence. And that is how gentle things are for us today. And so it's not a realistic reminder, but it is a gentle reminder in a very cinematic way of how difficult things could get. And also, it was a little bit encouraging to me because what it reminded me was is that we have the ability to live on far less than we do. I see Ryan has just popped into my corner here. What do we got going on there, Ryan? Yeah. Yeah, I, just, I want to throw a comment at you. I think it's a, a unique point in time because back then, at any point, if you felt like you lived in a city where the government became tyrannical, pretty much at, of all of history, you could always move west. You could always move out into an area and get away from government. But now we're at a time where that's really not an option. You, you don't really have the opportunity to avoid the United States government anymore by just picking up your family and moving to a new destination. So I just want to throw that out there. It's so true. And then also, for those of you who decide to go back and watch this pilot, in, uh, in 1974, it aired. It was about a 100-minute long pilot. And at the end of it, after all of the hard work, and you saw him kind of hacking, and he's using his, his handsaw, and he's chopping all these things, he literally builds a house with his bare hands in the middle of the dirt in the middle of nowhere where there are no other human beings and they survive the winter and uh, and prairie fires and Indian raids and so on. And after all of that, soldiers show up and they ride up to him and say that they've struck a new deal with the Indians who lived on the territories. And that's it. They've got to move. And so the next story is called On the Blank Banks of Plum Creek, but they built this house out of nothing and they literally just had to leave it all behind them. After everything he did, he you know built a fireplace and a mantle and all the things and, and finally got a roof on the darn thing. And then they were told by the US government they had to move. And so like Ryan just said, there was always the opportunity to move further along, either further west or further north or deeper into the woods or so on. And uh, that, that possibility doesn't really exist anymore. Um, the, the lands that are in this country are now claimed. A lot of them are federal lands and they're, they're claimed as public lands, but, uh, there's a big chunk of it that is owned and they are owned by the smaller and smaller group of people. So the piece of the pie that we can all share is a little bit smaller. It's just worth knowing there were times when we lived with far, far less. I think that's a little bit of a hopeful thing, even though there was some grinding poverty that was involved. And, uh, and if possible, I think we actually have topic number, let's see, four, maybe it was, um, yeah. Topic number four is actually the so-called true story behind the little house in the prairie. And this is just meaningful to me at the moment. If you pop that thing up there, Ryan, uh, most people who have, have seen this know that that's the family right there. So they're on the, they're on the, 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 uh, that's on the banks of Plum Creek. That's where most of the little house series was shot. It's actually one of the later books. And then they just kind of fictionalized a bunch of stuff, but there's, there's ongoing stories about how difficult it was. The fact that the, uh, the father of the, of, of the Ingalls family, would uh, walk away. His name was Charles. He would walk away from the dinner table to make sure that the kids had enough to eat. As again, they had four children, one of whom died 
uh, at eight months old. And uh, a lot of those stories are very sugar-coated reality. They are a little bit they are a little bit nicer than what goes on. Um, they had a, a daughter that ended up being blinded. People said it was because of scarlet fever, but it necessarily could have been something else. There's a lot of different childhood diseases. And so just how much gentler we have it, it's, I don't know, it's, it seems like a thing that we should be really aware of. And then also really worth noting, in my opinion, was it this this uh, this author, this famous American author who did one of the great works of American fiction or a, a nonfiction that's sort of autobiographical was removed from the canon of the Association for Library Services to Children in 2018 because they didn't like the depictions of black people and Native Americans, which imagine living out on the prairie in the middle of nowhere where it's just you and there's a tribe of people that have been there and you've been told you can go out there. You have no experience with any of these kind of things. And then suddenly you know, you just have a, a group of people. The scariest thing about the uh, the Indian threat at that time was a, a lack of language to be able to communicate. It wasn't like it was people that were, um, you know, rival gangs and they could have this conversation that there was any way to even negotiate. It was hand signals. And uh, we just sort of take that for granted with a, a society that has Google Translate and has people that we can call up on the phone and get translational services. This was totally foreign. Uh, those of you who've read Ender's Game know that that actually was the, cat the, the category of the, in, of the threat, the alien threat that you had to fight because you couldn't negotiate. You could never know what their intentions were if you lacked common language, if you lacked the ability to interpret the symbols coming at you or the verbal cues coming at you, uh, what their intention was. And so the attention had to be assumed to be hostile in order to survive. And it led to obviously a lot of human strife. Anyway, uh, just an interesting thing to reflect on. When we look at these 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 people that are voting against us right now, and historically, as Ryan said, the federal government has always sort of been something that has threatened people and made them move on and on, and now there is no escaping it. And we're going to talk about the so-called rhinos right now. So with a deep breath, I want to tell you this. We have this concept. The, the people on the political right call them rhinos, and it stands for Republicans in name only, because we have this concept, this platonic idea of what a Republican is. And as a non-Republican, as an independent who generally votes Republican, I can kind of see both sides of this thing. The idea is, is that there's some real Republican, a real conservative who votes really conservatively and has real principles that many of you may have. And that person is the, is the real version of the Republican Party. And then we have all these people that sell them out. And the sellouts are called rhinos. But the question is this. If we're going to talk about a so-called uniparty and everybody says that there's one big party and you're not in it, like George Carlin, if we're going to say that all politicians sort of look at for their own interests, then isn't the rhino the real Republican? Isn't that's really what the party does? It looks after the party. And we're going to do some examples here. Um, let's start with a video because it's nauseating. Let's start with a video of Lindsey Graham talking about the current president. This is eight years ago. So this is prior to Joe Biden being elected president in this country for whatever, better or for worse. He was, uh, he was sworn in in January of 21. And this is a guy that is theoretically a Republican, a longtime senator from South Carolina, talking about how much he loves the man that is now in the office. Uh, and if you haven't seen this, might open your eyes a little bit. All right, let's roll that clip number two. Is if you can't admire Joe Biden as a person, then it's probably you got a problem. <laughs> you need to do some self-evaluation. Because what's not to like? Here's what I can tell you: that life can change just like that. Don't take it for granted. Don't take relationships for granted. I called him after Bo died, 
And he basically said, well, Bo was my soul. I taught for a long time. He came to my ceremony uh, and said some of the most incredibly heartfelt things that anybody could ever say to me. And uh, he's the nicest person I think I've ever met in politics. Is that right? He is as good a man as God ever created. And we don't agree on much, but I think he's uh, been dealt a really gut blow. I think he focuses on what he's got to do, not what he lost. Uh, his, his heart's been ripped out, but he's gonna make sure that the other members of his family is well taken care of. And he started talking about his grandkids, more worried about them than anything. We just talked about the future. Yeah. He started talking about the future, the future of his family. Now, I let that run a little bit longer than I normally would because he talked about the future and the future of his family. Now, this is eight years ago prior to some of these things coming out. But if you think that people in Washington didn't know what Joe Biden was up to, I would be very surprised. I don't think that this is the first time that they've heard about any of the corruption allegations. That's just not how it works when you when you work back to back with someone day in and day out. And so here we have Lindsey Graham. His tears in his eyes. If you're not watching on the Rumble channel, you missed out. The tearful version of his rendition of how he's just a great man, one of the greatest people that God's ever created. A person that doesn't seem to have any actual skills, that hasn't had a job of any substance since 28, 29 years old, who was sworn in at his dying wife's bed at his request for the photo opportunity in black and white with his little girls next to him. A shameless self-promoter, a liar, a person who has been involved in uh, in plagiarism since the very beginning of his time in office, which has been basically his entire life. The man is 80 years old, and he was in office before he hit 30. And that's one of the best people that Lindsey Graham knows. Now, this is a political rival. This is somebody on the other side of the coin. This is somebody who theoretically has the exact opposite ideas about what America looks like, certainly in the last eight to 10 years, because we've seen the Democrat Party essentially say it is the party that hates America. It doesn't like our flag. It doesn't like our values. It doesn't like our common causes. It doesn't understand that uh, that human beings have innate dignity. It doesn't understand the value of God in society. It doesn't understand any of these things. And apparently has divorced itself, is running in the opposite direction in favor of pro-abortionist type arguments, anti-religious arguments, and basically substituting their own religion in. And Joe Biden is the, the head of that party. So that's weird. That's a weird thing to look at. What I'd like to do, if we could pull up the uh, the graphic, Ryan, that shows the voting percentage of some of those senators that we were looking at. And I think, I'm not sure what topic number it was under. But what we see is, is uh, you guys can always go to Heritage Action, which is an outstanding um, group. The Heritage Action for America will give you sort of a breakdown of how your particular representative or representatives you're interested in finding out about vote when it comes to, to so-called conservative topics. And they're pretty down the middle when it comes down to what you'd expect a conservative to actually be. Um, I think that we have this thing listed. Well, we could just bring up topic number five, which will show Mitch McConnell. Let's just start with Mitch McConnell, a guy that we can all kind of agree with. Uh, is it, He's in charge. He's the leader of the Senate, and he's been a significant figure in Republican politics for a long time. What you're seeing on the screen right now is his voting record in accordance with what you would expect a conservative to be. Now, Heritage is fair, and they consider a 75-plus percent rating to be about right. Everybody can have individual constituent changes. They can have uh, little disagreements regionally. 
But what you'd expect is that about three quarters of the time, Vivek actually said this, if you agree with me three quarters of the time, then we're basically on the same t- the same team. If three out of four votes go in the order that you would expect, and that's the lifetime average of Republican senators, 78%, Mitch McConnell is below that. His lifetime average in voting with the Heritage Foundation uh, expectations is 62%. And during that session, with their, which I screenshotted, which was the 117th uh, session, It's the same. It's 61%. He is consistently barely above 50%, barely over, um, you know, he's, he's under three out of four. Okay. He is a man who is in charge and doesn't vote as you would expect. And this is one of the thought leaders. Now we've got a graphic on the screen that I want you guys to, to look at the names. You've heard these names before. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, John Boozman, John Corning from Texas, Chuck Grassley, These people have anywhere from 20 to 59% ratings. They're all less than Mitch McConnell, by the way, who they gave Mitch McConnell a green because he's over 60%. Uh, Mike Rounds, Mitt Romney, John Thune. Okay, these these, uh, men and women have voted against the Republican Party with uh, with the others, with the Democrat Party, more often than you can imagine. They're almost batting 50-50. They're almost half the time siding with the opposition. Is that because they're so bipartisan and that's what Americans want? I don't think so. I think what we're seeing is that the real party, especially the main thought leaders and the people that are running the show there, are in fact voting against what their constituent thinks that they're about. But most people have no idea what their voting record is. Let's pull up this uh, clip. It's clip number four. This is Susan Collins. Um, we can bring up her voting record in a second. I'll tell you what the what the numbers look like. You saw that she was at the top of the list with 20% in favor of conservative causes. She only votes one out of five times the way that you'd expect. And here's a great example of it. If you bring up clip number four, this is how she spoke just two months ago on the floor of the Senate. Senator, for me. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. President. Mr. President, shortly the Senate will consider the debt ceiling package that passed the House last night by a strong vote. I commend the Speaker for his hard work and his negotiations to prevent what would be a disastrous default with catastrophic consequences for our economy, for people who rely on important government programs, for America's standing in the world. Nevertheless, Mr. President, there are two issues in this package that are very problematic. First, as you have heard from my colleagues, is the completely inadequate top-line number for our national defense. Second, is a harmful provision that would go into effect if any one of the 12 appropriations bills has not been signed into law. It would trigger an automatic meat acts indiscriminate across the board cut in our already inadequate defense budget and in the domestic discretionary non-defense funding. All right, that's good enough on there. That's as much as we can listen this- to her. 
We did a show the other day that was called Geriocracy. Um, she's 70 years old, for what it's worth. That is right at the level of when people probably should not be sitting in those offices. Uh, like I said, that's about two months old at this point. And what I want to do is do a quick read. Here's what happened. The vote was 63 to 36 on the debt ceiling suspension agreement, which was passed by the House. And it says that the long-standing policy position was uh, consistently called for dollar-for-dollar dollar cuts. This is the generally conservative position held by Heritage Action for America. The bill doesn't do what it what it should do. The bill uh, suspends the debt ceiling until 2025, kicks the can down the, down the road, and enables President Biden and a divided Congress to generate an estimated $4 trillion in new federal debt. And Susan Collins, who was just speaking against it, and you just heard her do it, she's a yes vote. She's on the 63 side. And in fact, a huge chunk of the Republicans... Right. They have about a 50-50 split. And you saw 36 voted no on that. Everybody else caved. And that's why that she has a lifetime score of 25 percent, but a session score most recently of 20 percent. One in five of her votes are basically along lines with the conservatives. And the people of Maine keep voting her in. As though she's a conservative. Let's move on to yet another. How about Lisa Murkowski? You've probably heard that name. She's in Alaska. Project Veritas did an interesting expose finding out that, in fact, she was using ranked choice voting, which uh, a lot of libertarians are very upset about the concept of it, have been using that in order that they can uh, skirt the unpopularity of the candidate and basically say that somebody who votes most of the time with the Democrat Party, who's a functional Democrat but has a Republican name, is going to grab a couple of Republican votes and a bunch of Democrat votes in these ranked choices, and therefore is going to be the senator from Alaska, which you would think is a very conservative state. And by all accounts, it should be. And yet, this is the woman who is out there holding office, one of the two most powerful offices of Senate from Alaska. If you'll play clip number three, Ryan, we're going to see a little bit from her campaign video. I want you to look at the topics that she brings up. And you can roll it whenever. But here in Alaska, we have strong, steady, principled leadership, a one-of-a-kind senator who understands our needs. A lifelong Alaskan, Lisa Murkowski has earned the respect of her colleagues in both parties. As a senior member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, Lisa fights hard every day for Alaska, cutting through the partisan gridlock and dysfunction in Washington to get results for us strengthening our fisheries and protecting our oceans, investing in renewables to combat climate change while expanding energy production to create good jobs, saving our tourism industry during COVID and securing funding for Alaska's critical infrastructure, providing our veterans with better health care, advocating for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, and always defending Alaska native languages and traditional values. That's about Lisa that. Murkowski puts Alaska first. So she puts Alaska first, apparently, uh, by worrying about climate change, by making sure that the Native Americans have money to keep their um, their their languages up. Right. She's got a bunch of buzzwords and topics that basically reach across the aisle to things that are that are pet projects of the left. She wants to spend money on infrastructure, which was a Biden initiative. She wants to spend a bunch of big federal dollars on things. And maybe that helps out her state. And maybe that's what people in her state want. But generally speaking, that's not a very conservative position. I'm going to read a couple of the things. First of all, she voted as a yes to confirm Katenji Brown Jackson, who was not able to articulate what a woman is during her uh, her her confirmation. 
She was a yes vote on the $1.5 trillion omnibus and supplemental package. Again, not a conservative position, right? Uh, she voted to amend the Bankrupting Americans Act, Senate Bill 610, which was essentially a bailout for a bunch of self-inflicted work, allowing uh, waiving of the PAYGO rules. And uh, they were trying to avoid cuts in Medicare. So she said yes to that as part of the American Rescue Plan. She was a yes vote on the Small Business COVID Relief Act of 2022, on the bipartisan, the so-called bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Again, not a very particularly, this was a, a gun control proposal, allowing them to stitch in a bunch of school safety and mental health stuff, but going after guns in some ways. Uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, she was a yes on that, and she was a yes on the Consolidated Appropriations Act, which happened at the end of last year, which was part of the budgeting process. And uh, yet another failure. It's all about money and it's all about money still flowing. And so you won't be surprised to learn that Lisa Murkowski has a lifetime voting with Republican score of about 36%. And she's been about 32% up to this point. Again, the average Senate Republican is a 78. That's a three out of four. And she's like one out of three. Okay. And so Lisa Murkowski, who probably would not actually be able to hold office without the ranked choice voting, is in fact a strong, safe candidate right now. And she's in for another, you know, six years as of uh, last cycle. So this is what continues to happen. And she's, you know, she seems to be not the exception. She seems to be the rule. I think that's what we do. We just put these people in office that don't want to go anywhere. And the consequences of that are pretty stark and pretty, pretty staggering. And it comes down to things like putting in judges and approving judges that are utterly ridiculous. So I'm going to pivot away from these sort of rhinos. I'm going to talk about something else. I want to talk about Texas Pete because it's a little bit more lighthearted. And then we'll talk about NAFOs, which are ridiculous too. Um, Texas Pete, if you'll bring up topic number seven, Ryan, this is a story that is pretty bizarre on every level. But this is kind of how you end up in uh, the world where we have a, a judge siding with a man who sued a company in in North Carolina called Texas Pete. Now you can see it on the screen right now if you're watching our channel. This is the classic original hot sauce, Texas Pete. It's a Louisiana style hot sauce. And the judge said that customers could believe in air, erroneously, they could believe that these products originated in Texas because it has a picture of a cowboy and a lasso and there's a star on it. Now, I need you to, to tell me whether or not, and you can put it in the comments below, by all means, just sit down below, hit the like button on the way down to it, and then let us know, does it matter to you if the Texas-style, Louisiana-style hot sauce called Texas Pete is made in North Carolina, if it's made in uh, Texas, North Carolina, which is a little city, whether the cowboy can only be someone who's from Texas, and whether that matters when you spend $3 or $2.78 on a tiny little bottle of hot sauce that uh, that may or may not be from Texas with the word Texas on it. The number of Texas hot sauces that are not made in Texas is significant, by the way, as someone who's from Texas and goes and looks at these kind of labels. But this is something that a federal judge has weighed in on. And the judge has basically said that this might be some you know dangerous false advertising that... Uh, that the name of Gardner Foods was, uh, you know, is an issue because it's in North Carolina and not there. This is a registered trademark since 1953, and the original Texas Pete name was registered in 1960. But some guy in California decided to file a lawsuit and uh, a class action lawsuit saying that everybody should be refunded their money. And this judge said, you know, there's some merits to this case. So who is this judge? If you can bring up the next topic there, that's going to be topic number eight. Who is this judge and where did she come from? 
Well, first of all, she has an utterly unpronounceable name. Her name is Maami Iwasu Mensa Frimpong, as far as I can tell. She was born in 1976 in the United States, in Los Angeles, and her parents immigrated here from Ghana. She attended a very fancy girls' school because apparently her, her family had some money to send her there. And then she has a, a bachelor's from Harvard, and she has a law degree from Yale. So she has the regular pedigree that you'd expect. She has a shaved head, as you can see on our channel right now. Um, and she was appointed originally into the Superior Court Circuit of Los Angeles by Jerry Brown. Big fan of Jerry Brown. He gave us Kamala Harris and some others. And then was appointed to the federal bench in the Central District of California by Joseph R. Biden. So we have this sort of establishment pathway where you come in, you're a kind of a radical, you go to these uh, radical leftist schools, and then you end up sitting in a district court, which is below the appeals court. These are the people that we're seeing make all these really wild decisions nationwide. They were the ones that were tying up Trump's uh, border policies. They are now tying up Texas Pete in litigation, saying that there's some some value in this when uh, when in fact, who cares? Why would the, would the federal government be able to issue any of these kind of findings? What does this have to do with anyone? This is a local matter, maybe, of a guy who doesn't like the name Texas Pete. Don't buy it. That's the brilliance of America. But this just shows you how soft our country has gotten. That one, this lady was able to go in a very privileged way, and she's able to sit in this kind of thing. And now she's able to opine on such ridiculous cases as whether or not the word Texas and the picture of a cowboy on a bottle of hot sauce is something that can be sold. Um, you know, you can just imagine how the Ingalls family running around on the prairie cared so deeply about what the branding was. One of the great uh, scenes from that, and something I reminded my children of, is that the, the children receive basically an unwrapped uh, stick of candy, which is like a, um, it's a peppermint stick, and they get a metal cup, like a canteen cup, which many of us had in the military. And that was enough for them to have tears in their eyes. That was the joy that they brought. And now we have a lady here letting us know that it's really dangerous that we have hot sauce with the name Texas that's not made in Texas, even if it's Texas style, Louisiana style, which by the way, it certainly is Louisiana style. <laughs> that's, that's how hot sauces look in Louisiana. Um, bizarre. And, and Texas Pete is by no means something I'm really uh, favorable to, but I talked to Garrett O'Boyle over this weekend. He actually sent me this article and he was enraged because it was in every single defect. It was in every single chow hall in the military and nobody cared whether it was from Texas or North Carolina or anywise, what they cared about was is that the food wasn't very flavorful and it was a taste of home. And so they enjoyed it. And that's the kind of the silliness that we're living in right now in so many ways. Um, we have a little bit of a graphic picture, a graphic image of uh, what's going on in the Ukraine war. I want to show that and then I want to talk about how silly it is that we're living in the world where Texas hot sauce is an issue. And then also there's a group called the NAFO, which we'll bring up in just one second. First, I want to show you the reality of, uh, of life on the ground from what we can tell. This is from a program called Redacted. They're on YouTube. They seem excellent. It's Ryan's favorite uh, informational news podcast, bringing in stuff from all over the globe. They're actually paying this independent reporter to go out there and report on things from the Ukrainian war from the Russian side of the front. And I think that uh, many of you probably have not seen stuff like this. So if you haven't and you want to, this is a place for you to go see it. This is a shameless plug for them. We have no um, connection to them other than they, they seem to be doing really, really good reporting, showing that there are two sides of this coin, not just the uh, I support Ukraine nonsense that we see on all the American tech company logos. So Ryan, if you want to roll clip number five and folks tuck in, this is a little bit, uh, a little bit spicy. 
Uh, but this is the area right now where Russian forces are fighting the fiercest battle against Ukrainian positions. And the bombing has been fierce and absolutely devastating. Patrick Lancaster, independent journalist, uh, filed this report from the front lines of Donetsk. It is absolutely horrifying what is happening right there. Watch, please. <laughs> This is mine for us. He just said it's a mine for us if you couldn't hear him. Quick. All right, Redacted, I'm on the Russian uh, front line between Donetsk and Avdivka right now. We just filled the report and uh, we came under uh, pretty intense uh, shelling. Apparently we were spotted from above and they were shelling all around us and uh, firing machine guns at us and the Russian soldiers we were with firing back. Here's the whole report from us getting here until us narrowly evading uh, being seriously injured. My cameraman, Sasha, was a little bit injured, uh, but it's just a little, uh, a little thank God. Uh, so here's the video. You know, you're not gonna see this in the Western mainstream video. We give you a choice to, things, to see things on both sides of the line. If you're just watching, what he says is that we'll move um, as follows. I go, he goes four meters. They're setting up their, their, their ability to run across to another area right now. So the, the Russians are giving the cameramen and the journalists you know, some basic understanding of how to run when they're shelling, how not to panic, how to stay with them, not to run off in the forest where there's mines or there's loose ordnance. He says, don't hurry, you'll do fine. <laughs> he seems very calm. This journalist, as you can tell by his voice, is, is pretty shaken. He said, how is the situation? He said, stable but tense, 50-50. Okay, so, we got that on camera, but there was just an explosion. Yeah, there's another one. All right, so I think we should do a little bit. They're running through the woods right now. I'm showing you guys this because I don't think you're seeing this anywhere else if you're not watching this kind of stuff. You can hear small arms fire indirect right now, and the guys are just carrying their weapons. They're going down into another bunker. All right, so we're just uh, came down in the bunker here on the trench line. Uh, as you heard, it's getting a little loud uh, outside, getting a little more active. Uh, but we're going to have a talk to some of the soldiers uh, here and see what they have to say. Uh, He's asking these guys where they come from. And they're from Siberia. And keep describing the situation as stable but tense. These guys were conscripted, they were mobilized. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's asking them how they feel about being there, and they're saying this is our motherland, we have to go. I think we can probably cut it because a lot of this is going to be in Russian from here on out. Uh, they're speaking through a translator, so Ryan, we'll kind of shut it down there. What I'd like to do, folks, is I'm going to put the, a link in the description so you guys can actually go see that, a just the timestamp there. And we'll put that down in the show notes or we'll put it in one of the comments if you want to scroll down through our comments. I think it's worth noting that essentially what they say is we're very stocked up on ammunition. We have all the supplies that we need. And if the Ukrainians want to come at us, they can bring it. That's part one. The other thing is, is they're incredibly young. These are young, young men, 18, 19, 20 years old. They have baby faces. If, if you're watching on the channel, you saw that. And their attitude is like men who have always been called into battle that that. that believe in their country. So kind of interesting. I don't know if we're getting a cherry picked version of that. That's certainly the possibility. Like they're all, all war media tends to be uh, sort of propagandized, but they dropped them into this bunker where they're getting shot at. And these kids are sitting there and they're like, yeah, we've been here for months and months and we're ready to go. And it's definitely pretty intense to think about that. All we're catching is that uh, the, you know, the, the Russians are the evil side. And now we have all this debate on it. So this brings in this topic of, of NATO which we are a part of. That's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a Cold War vestige that existed basically for the United States and those in Western Europe to oppose the aggressions of the USSR, the Soviet Union. Uh, if you were born after the fall of the wall, you don't remember that. If you were a little kid during that, you don't recall that NATO was really instrumental in uh, keeping that line. There's this really strange movement online, and I triggered it this weekend on uh, sort of initially on accident, and then I just sort of leaned in and, and said, come and, come and engage with my platform, just to draw out as many of these idiots as you can. And they're, uh, they're a group of memers. I don't know any other way around it. You're looking at their uh, the, the Wikipedia page here. They have kind of adapted what the, the NATO logo looks like, and they go by the following. They refer to themselves as the North Atlantic Fella Organization, F-E-L-L-A, like fellow, but fella because it's non-gender specific. And they've taken on this uh, Shiba Inu dog as their motto, as an avatar, which is this like sort of weird Japanese dog that has squinty eyes and it's like real fluffy and cutesy looking. And then they run around on, on social media sites posting about how Ukraine is great and winning the war and, uh, you know, the Russians are all evil and anybody who doesn't support NATO, which is kind of like this bizarre grift at this point. President Trump was really big on trying to get the NATO allies to fund their share of it. The United States pays for a big chunk of it. And they're they're out there. And I guess they initially started off in Europe and they started off with this sort of like, I don't know, anti-Russian movement, which is sort of understandable if you're on that front. Uh, they, they were coming out of Lithuania initially. And then uh, now they're just sort of like generally anti-conservative idiots. And a lot of them are in America. And what's really funny is, is just how pathetic these people are, is they they create, I don't even think they understand what's going on. They all use like uh, Russian terms. They've been calling me Vatnik all day. I don't know what that is, but like, I don't care either because the online is not real. Once again, I'm looking at the little house on the prairie and deciding whether or not I could fit everything that's necessary and all my tools into a, uh, into a minivan and take my family into the prairie and go find safety. And these guys are out there uh, like sending pictures of dogs and, and saying a bunch of profane things. But what's really funny is, is, uh, and this is the why it's so amusing. If you're actually following us on Twitter, you already know about this. It says, like the real NATO, the NAFO, the North Atlantic Fella Organization, has an Article 5 duty of assistance. So Article 5 is the, the part of the treaty for NATO that says that if uh, one NATO country is attacked, then the other NATO countries must jump in. That's the nature of what the treaty is. It's a non-aggression pact that basically keeps the Russians at bay. And it says that if you attack Lithuania or Poland or... Um, 
you know, if you attack France, then the United States will jump in. You got to deal with a much bigger animal. This is kind of the way that treaties were. This is how we ended up with World War One and World War Two. Ukraine, notably, is not part of NATO, although it's sort of NATO adjacent for a long time and has had been under the cover of NATO. It's not a NATO country. And so we have no Article 5 duty to to defend them. That's the big argument against us sending all this money there. And these idiots have created this like fake thing online where they run around doing this. And I think it's just it shows you the sort of live action role play existence that we've been able to uh, allow with the soft times. And it says every fella can call upon another fella for help if they're under attack or they encounter serious disinformation for this. The NAFA members use the hashtag NF. N-A-F-O Article 5, and then they receive support from other fellas. Now, notably, and why this is sort of even funnier in, in the talk about our, our rhinos, is that uh, Adam Kissinger, who, who many of you have seen was voted out, but but was a uh, kind of a, a simp for the other side. <laughs> Kissinger was was uh, 100% in this category and actually has some tweets that have been deleted since then asking for, for these fellas to come to his aid online and uh, counter the disinformation. So we're just in such a bizarre, soft and gentle world. And it just lets you know that the next swing is going to be hard times creating harder men, I suppose. Um, and if that's not uh, a symbol of, of the times, then I'll just show you that people are becoming more and more aware. They are starting to wake up and they are sick of these things. Uh, Adam getting voted out as one. And many of us saw this guy, Mitch McConnell, who was at the top of the chain. He, like I said, we talked about him being a voter 60% of the time he's, he's with the, uh, with the Republicans, but 40% of the time he's basically voting on his own and he's voting with the Democrats. Um, he's taken on the uh, the hashtag glitch McConnell because he failed to to speak. He had either a cerebral um, vascular event while he was talking the other day or whatever. But people are starting to realize because of this geriocracy, because of the fact that people are sick of watching their representatives not vote the way they're they're asking them to. Um, I think people are more and more aware of it. And here's a great example of it. Ryan, if you'll cue up video number eight, what we're going to see here is this is what happens when your hometown crowd of a guy who's been voted over and over and again into the Senate suddenly um, stays too long and people become too aware of a situation. You can roll that video. Mitch is doing his best to get through this, but many of you probably can't hear what he's saying and no one else can either because all they're yelling is retire. That's about enough of that. It just goes on and on. And this man basically faced a, a very hostile hometown crowd. And as you can also tell, and this is the thing that I think is the biggest takeaway. He has no idea how to deal with it. Not even a little bit. He just sits there and reads the speech off the paper and he tucks into his, his turtle shell. Many people think he looks like Yertle the turtle. I'm one of them. And, and Mitch is out there doing the best he can to just weather the storm of people chanting over and over again, booze and retire because I think people are aware and they're starting to wake up. Ryan and I have been talking about this all weekend. There's an awareness that has not been there before 
that this doesn't have to be the way that you accept it. You don't have to accept your elected representatives not doing the right thing. The barrier to entry is much lower than it's ever been. The advent of the internet, which has made things worse in many ways because we have the North Atlantic fellow organization, but it also has made things better because we can communicate information very, very quickly as long as we're not being censored. We can share the ideas that are going on and people can see that this old doddering guy who's probably in many ways, he votes with Biden half the time, literally half the time. And uh, he just doesn't, he doesn't represent the people of Kentucky. That's not what you need out there. That is not the man that you want leading the Senate for the Republicans uh, as a minority leader. And, uh, and people are sick of it. As you just heard, that was, that was a hometown crowd that turned dramatically against that man. So worth noting that even though we're in kind of an awful way, um, we are not without hope simply because we can disseminate information in a way that never was before. And none of you are living out of a color covered wagon. If you're watching the show, you're probably watching it either on your iPhone or you're sitting there streaming it onto their computer while you're doing your other work. And uh, we're in a pretty nice spot. It'll get rough, but I don't think it'll get nearly as rough as what the Angles families faced as they went out there with the, uh, the wild Indians and the prairie fires and so on. And, and the fact that every single thing in nature was a fight. We are, we've eliminated almost all of those threats to our existence right now. So we can really kind of bear down on maybe getting our government in order, which would be an awfully nice change. Um, I think that is about it for our show today. We're just going to let you know that you've been listening to this Kyle Serafin show stream live from Liberty Hill, Texas. One of the, uh, the fellas online called me out and said, shut up, you're in Liberty Hill. And it's like, yes, I am. And I announced that to my entire show every single day. So thanks for joining us for our show today. We want to thank a couple of people. First of all, we want to thank you for listening. Uh, some of our new monthly supporters have been jumping into the Rumble channel. It is awesome. We do really appreciate that. And as this show continues to grow, we get more and more five-star reviews like this one. This one is written by Ramona Jeff. This is on the, uh, the Apple app. We're up to 634 total. It says, a great podcast. Kyle's Rumble Show podcast is one of the best out there. He's a brush of fresh air and always brings interesting topics. His work experience gives him a great deal of insight as what's really going on behind the curtain. Awesome that his show is now five days a week. Always the first one I watch each day. Well, we really appreciate that, Jeff. Thanks for watching us. And if you want your five-star review read, you can just post it. Give us an interesting name. Give us a great little review down there. A five-star review on Apple. The link is in the description, and we will read it on the show as well. We've got a handful more. I think we picked up eight over the weekend, so I've got a couple of backlogs. So thanks so much for, for doing that, folks. We do really appreciate it. It does move us up in the Apple rankings. And um, and I like to hear back from you guys. It's, it's good to get your perspective on things. Uh, again, we had uh, the show only possible, again, because of Ryan Matta and the hard work and skill you saw dropping up and putting those video clips up. So follow him on Twitter. He is not engaging with the NAFO fellas, but uh, he is sending off a bunch of really interesting threads right now. Ryan Matta, M-A-T-T-A Media on Twitter, and Ryan Matta, M-A-T-T-A, on True Social, if you're following out there. Uh, folks, don't forget to like this video. Scroll on down until you make sure that thumb is green. We do really appreciate that as well. That moves us up on the Rumble leaderboard, and it makes a big difference in that. And you can always follow our show live if you're watching somewhere else. Rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin will get you to our main page. And if you put a slash live, Kyle Serafin slash live, you'll get the newest show that's already out there, uh, whatever's coming up next. And you can engage in the live chat with all of our chatters. Please feel free to share this thing on social media. And once again, like I said, subscribe at anywhere that you're watching. But we do like to see you there on the Rumble. And we will see you again tomorrow for the next episode of The Kyle Serafin Show. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.